Uh, so what I'm going to do this morning is we're actually going to go to a story, actually a couple of stories in the book of Daniel. So turn with me to the book of Daniel, if you will. This is not going to be your typical uh, message, not your typical Dave Field message, I should say. Uh, usually what I do is I'll bring a passage, you know, from the New Testament. We'll go through the verses. We'll talk about what's there, whatever. This morning we're actually going to go through two chapters in the book of Daniel. Now, when you hear me saying we're going to go through two chapters, that sounds like it's going to be a fiercely long sermon. I promise it won't be. Okay. What we're going to do is we're going to compare two stories. We're going to compare the story in Daniel chapter 4 with the story in Daniel chapter 5. This is going to be narrative. It's going to be storytelling. It will, it will be uh, a little easier than... Uh, uh, trucking through doctrine or something like that. Okay, that's what we're going to do today. Um, I want to compare the story of uh, Daniel chapter 4, which is a story on the humbling of a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar, with the story of another Babylonian king named Belshazzar in chapter 5. But we need to give a little background, a little context. Uh, maybe it's been a while since you've read the book of Daniel. It's been a little while for me, okay. So a little wrap-up, a little context kind of to put us on the map where we are uh, in the Bible story. Where we are at is during a time called the Babylonian captivity, okay. What has happened is God's people, the Jews living in Israel, have gone so far away from God, so far astray into worshiping idols and things that God says, okay, I'm going to take you people to Babylon for 70 years till you learn your lesson, and then you can come home. So that's what happens. Jews are taken by this uh, wicked Babylonian king. He's a, he's a pagan, a polytheist, worships many gods, right? He comes, he smashes Jerusalem, he burns the temple, he takes the Jews off to his country. Uh, in Daniel chapter 1, what we have happening is Nebuchadnezzar takes the brightest and best of Jewish kids, and he re-educates them to be pagan Babylonian citizens, to serve him. And in chapter 1, we have uh, three of these boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and actually Daniel as well, so there's four of them, uh, band together and say, hey, listen, we're not going to give up our faith. We're not going to eat uh, Babylonian food. We're going to eat kosher food. We're only going to worship God. We're going to obey God's laws. Remember the story. And, and they're honored for that, uh, men standing true to their faith. Then in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, this pagan king, has a dream. It's a frightening dream, and he gets the magicians in to tell him what the dream was and to tell him what it means, and Daniel's the only one who can do that. God gives Daniel a vision of what it was, and the vision is, is of a large statue that's made of four different kinds of metal, starting with a golden head, and then there's silver, and then there's bronze, and then there's iron, and the king is disturbed. What does it mean? Daniel says, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold your empire, you know, and after you is going to come another kingdom, the silver kingdom, Persia, and after them is going to come another one, Greece, and after them is going to come another one, Rome. He's kind of lining out history there, right? And then what happens at the end of the, the, the story, we all know there's a large stone that comes out of heaven and smashes the entire statue and becomes a mountain that takes over the entire earth. It's the kingdom of God that comes after all the human kingdoms are done. Nebuchadnezzar is disturbed by that. And rightfully so, right? Because Nebuchadnezzar and his golden kingdom is the head of the statue. What's Nebuchadnezzar's response to the dream? Chapter 3 of the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar makes an entire statue, 90 feet high, all out of gold. This is a proud response to the dream. You know what Nebuchadnezzar is saying by making a golden statue? He's saying there is not going to be a silver kingdom. There's just going to be a gold kingdom. My kingdom. Me forever. <laughs> And he commands everyone to bow down to the statue and worship the thing. 
And like we had in chapter 1, we've got some Jewish boys who band together and say, we're not going to worship anything except the true God, most high God. And so when the music plays and all the people bow down, there's three of them. We don't know where Daniel was at the time, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand there. They're not bowing down. You remember the story. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar gets so mad, throws them in a fire, tries to burn them alive, and they don't burn. He says, come out of there. They come out of the furnace. You know, they're fine. They don't even smell like smoke. And uh, God obviously protected them, right, for, for standing up for him. God didn't need to do that, by the way, but God did. Massive object lesson for a proud king. And the king ends up saying, okay, uh, anyone who speaks a word against the God of these men shall be punished. Now, what's interesting in that story is Nebuchadnezzar doesn't actually say God is the only God. Nebuchadnezzar is still a polytheist. He still worships all kinds of stuff, probably worships himself, all kinds of other gods. But at this point, he's bent far enough to say, okay, we won't persecute people who worship you know, their God kind of thing. That's as far as he gets. Chapter 4, the first story we're going to look at today, we're going to look at the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to look at this man brave. God is, God is after Nebuchadnezzar's heart to get him to realize who God is and that God wants a relationship with him. So look with me at Daniel chapter 4. Now Daniel chapter 4 is an interesting chapter because it's the only chapter in the Bible, as far as I know, that's written by a pagan. Okay, what we have happening in Daniel chapter 4 is a letter from Nebuchadnezzar to basically the entire known world at the time. Nebuchadnezzar is the, the king of this massive multi-country empire, and he writes a letter and he says, Dear people of the world, here's what happened to me. To all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. A little bit of a change in tone going on here from chapter 3. The man is pointing out that God is the true God. God is the one to worship. God is the one who's in charge. What's happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, we'll find out. Look at chapter 4, or verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Oh, we need to talk about Nebuchadnezzar's palace building for a little bit. How many of you, of you have heard of something called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? maybe in high school or something like that. Okay, it's a real thing, one of the seven wonders of the world, if I remember right. Nebuchadnezzar lives in the country of Babylonia back at the time, which is modern-day Iraq. Iraq is not a very mountainy area. It's kind of flat. It's kind of deserty. Not a whole lot of trees. Actually, not a real pretty place. You look at the pictures. You see the places where our guys are fighting overseas there, you know, in Iraq. It's not a, not a mountainy, lush, garden-type area. Nebuchadnezzar marries a girl from a mountain area further north, and she doesn't like Babylon. She wants to go home where the mountains are. So what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Nebuchadnezzar is filthy rich. So the man pauses on his other projects, and he decides to make mountains for his bride. So he makes a city of mountains. He makes mountains out of buildings. And he brings in soil, and he covers them in soil, and he plants trees and gardens going up the mountain buildings, and he brings in irrigation canals from the Euphrates River outside the wall, and there's pumps bringing water up, and waterfalls cascading down, and he makes a garden mountain city for his girl. She wants to stick around now because she gets to live in the mountains. Isn't that cool? That's what the man did. Uh, hanging gardens of Babylon, okay? It's a real deal. The man made that. Prospering in his palace, he says. Imagine that type of a setting. He says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. 
As I lay in bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought in before me. Okay, Nebuchadnezzar has another disturbing dream. Bring in all the magic men. Tell me what the dream means. Right? I guess that's what they do. They bring in the soothsayers and the, and the, uh, the shamans and all that stuff. Um, now, it says that the, the magicians and enchanters, etc., he told them the dream this time, but they couldn't make known the interpretation. That's verse 7. Then he says, at last Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Okay, let's do a couple of clarifying things here. Daniel is the name we're going to call this man through the rest of the story. He has a Babylonian name. Babylonian king named him after some Babylonian god, calls him Belteshazzar. Okay, now we don't want to confuse Belteshazzar with Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the dude we're going to talk about in the next chapters. Just keep that in mind. Belteshazzar with the T-E is actually another name for Daniel. Okay? Daniel comes in. Interesting that the king says this guy has the spirit of the holy gods in him. This is a pagan looking at a man of God, and he says this man has a spirit from holy gods in him. Now he's got something wrong. It's not God's plural, it's God singular, capital G, right? But this man recognizes there's the Holy Spirit living in Daniel. What kind of a man was Daniel? Man of integrity, right? Man of wisdom, man of righteousness. And that's evident to this pagan king. Call in Daniel. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream uh, that I saw and their interpretation. Now, Nebuchadnezzar tells the dream to Daniel. We're going to jump ahead, and we're going to read the dream, and then we're going to read Daniel's interpretation. Verse 10, the visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. This thing of a tree, a picture of a tree that is giving sustenance and protection and shade to like everyone around is an Old Testament picture. And in fact, it's not just an Old Testament picture. It's an old old picture from the old time, sort of the great tree that lives in the center of the earth and everything gets its sustenance from the tree. That's an old image. You go back to old uh, pagan Viking culture, they have the, the great tree that you know uh, stands between earth and heaven and everything eats from the tree, whatever. These people had that, that idea as well. Now, what we're going to find out in the vision is that the tree is actually meant to symbolize Nebuchadnezzar. Makes sense in a way, right? Nebuchadnezzar is the head of this vast empire. And all the little people come to Nebuchadnezzar for protection and for sustenance, for life. He's the center of the universe at his time. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay on my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. Now, a watcher, that's an interesting term. Uh, what we're referring to here is a spirit being, probably an angelic being of some kind. Okay, Back in the old writings, some of them refer to the angelic beings as being watchers. They're the, the spirit beings who watch over earth for God sort of thing. Okay, So there's this angelic being who comes down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. 
would leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and broads amid the tender grass of the field. Okay, no wonder the dream was a little disturbing to Nebuchadnezzar, right? Here's this great beautiful tree that's taking care of the entire globe. And then an angel comes and says, chop the tree down, chop the branches off, chop the fruit off, let everything leave. Disturbing, scary. What does that mean? It says, uh, uh, leave the stump in the ground. I guess in the dream, they don't destroy the tree, do they? They leave the, tr- they leave the stump in the ground, the taproot that goes down into the earth there. So there's something left, and they're supposed to put a band of bronze around it, sort of protect it from rotting out or something. There's something that's left that's protected. Now look what he says. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Notice how it stops talking about a tree and starts talking about a person. The tree is a person, right? Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar was a little disturbed. It says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, so that... The living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This was my dream. (laughs) Okay, and now he kicks it toward Daniel. Daniel, tell me what's going on here. Tell me what this means. Here goes Daniel with the interpretation. Now, you look at the interaction between Daniel and this king, Nebuchadnezzar, you get a feeling that Daniel actually likes Nebuchadnezzar a little bit. I think he actually kind of cares for him a little bit. He's lived with them a long time, by the way. Daniel, at this point, is middle-aged. When he came to Babylonia years ago, he was a youth, probably a teen or early 20s. Now he's about 55, somewhere in there. Uh, lived with Nebuchadnezzar for a long time. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. Uh, he answered and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Boy, King, I sure wish this dream would happen to your enemies. You know, this is not a good dream. I wish this wasn't for you. I think he actually cares about the man a little bit. Verse 20, the tree which you saw, which grew, etc., etc. Verse 22, it is you, O King. The tree is you. That's who you are. This great thing that gives sustenance to the earth, center of the world at our time, right? It's you. And you saw the watcher coming down, verse 23, saying, chop it down. And band it with iron. This is the interpretation, O king, verse 24. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you, get this, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. Isn't that interesting? What's going to happen to you, Nebuchadnezzar, sadly, is you're going to have an animal mind all of a sudden. You're going to go crazy, and you're going to eat grass like a cow. And seven periods of time are going to pass over you until you realize that God is the true God. God is going to break you, Nebuchadnezzar. That's what's going to happen to you. Now, question, seven periods of time. It doesn't tell us what that is. All through the chapter here, it refers to it as seven periods of time. I'm going to give you some reasons in a few minutes why I think it's seven years. Uh, But anyway, seven periods of time are going to happen to you. Now, at this point, Daniel says, uh, 
Here's the interpretation. This is what's going to happen. Oh, by the way, verse uh, uh, 26 and 20, 26, he says, uh, you know where the, the, the tree stump is left in the ground and they put the bronze around it? That's to preserve your kingdom because there's going to be something left when the seven periods of time are done. Okay, So it's not a complete destruction of Nebuchadnezzar's life or his kingdom. It's not like they came in with equipment and you know dug the tree out of the ground and chopped up the stump. They, they left something there to grow later. So that's verse 26. Now verse 27, Daniel preaches to this pagan king. He gives some application. He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. This is kind of like a Jonah moment. You remember the story of Jonah? Jonah goes down under the sea in the great fish story, remember that? And God brings him to Nineveh, and he goes to Nineveh, and he says, you guys have 40 days, and your city's going to be destroyed. God says, you know. And the people repent, and then God backs it up. He says, okay, then I won't do that. God gave Nineveh another 100 years because the people repented from their sins. You realize that? Didn't happen. Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, here's what I would do. Knowing the God that I know, If this is going to happen to you, what I would do is I would repent now. I would leave your sins. I would leave your your murders. I would take care of the poor. I I would change how you're acting. Maybe God will do something different. Who knows, right? We're not told how Nebuchadnezzar responded to the dream. We're not told how he responded to the interpretation. All we have is what happens next. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. He was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon, hanging gardens, right? And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) Pride going on here. whole lot of pride going on. The king is looking out over all these beautiful towers and ziggurats and gardens, and there's the beautiful Ishtar gate painted in blue with gold dragons and lions going up it and Marble walls and huge, big, protective double wall outside there going around the whole place. Isn't this the thing that I made? Aren't I awesome? While the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. This happens fast, people. The man hardly gets this out of his mouth, and a voice comes from heaven saying this, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You should be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whoever he wants. And immediately the word was fulfilled, and that's what happened. Man goes outside, goes insane, right? People, people look at this, and they're like, how can that happen? You know, what is this? Is fairy tale stuff or whatever. There's actually a disease, that, that, and I forget the name of the thing, but this is actually like a real condition where somebody goes nuts and thinks they're an animal. That actually happens to some people. This happened to this guy. Living outside, they must have put some kind of an enclosure around so he didn't hurt himself or other people, but he's living out there eating grass like a cow. It says until his, until his uh, hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Okay, here's the seven-week or seven-month thing. It says seven periods of time are going to pass over the guy. I don't think it was seven days because that doesn't happen in seven days. And I don't think it was seven, seven uh, weeks either. It's either seven months or maybe it's seven years. Okay? 
Now, looking at history, there are secular writers who have noted that there is a seven-year period of time in Nebuchadnezzar's life where he didn't go to war. Nebuchadnezzar was a warrior king. He was constantly expanding the boundaries of his empire. There's a period of time there, and I've got the years here if I, if I can find it. Um, not entirely important, but it's kind of interesting sometimes. Uh, 582 through 575 B.C., where the man did no military activity or whatever. Probably it's when this happened. He's sitting at home out in the backyard eating grass. You know, Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be? You know, People come to see the king. We need to talk to him, please. Uh, serious situation in the empire. Oh, sorry, he's, he's uh, busy right now out in the back eating some grass. <laughs> we'll have to get someone else to talk to you today. You know, Just hang on. Who ruled the place while he was away? I don't know. You know, we had to have other people probably step in. Uh, we know what the result is, though. Look at verse 34. It says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Like he praises the Lord. No one can get in his way and say, What have you done? He ends, ends with that. Now I worship and praise the God of heaven. This is verse 37. I praise and extol and honor the, the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And look at this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Hey, here's something maybe you never thought about before. It, it struck me as I was studying for this. This is the, the evil King Nebuchadnezzar who came to Israel, broke down Jerusalem, burnt the temple, took the Jews off into captivity. Wicked man! And you're probably going to see him in heaven. God got a hold of his heart, didn't he? If God went after a pagan king, a wicked pagan king, to get his heart to say, hey, recognize me, what do you think God wants from you guys? What do you think God wants from this guy? You know, people who know Jesus and, 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 and know the rest of the story, God wants our heart just as bad. God wants us to recognize who he is. God wants us to lay down our little tinfoil crown and acknowledge that he is God. That he's the one in charge. That all life and sustenance and protection and blessing, everything comes from him. God wants to be acknowledged, you know. Our society is kind of short on acknowledging God. We like to acknowledge, you know, the big number one here. That's me, right? That's, that's our society. We wrap ourselves in layers of pride. We do the same thing. God's after all of us to say, hey, don't forget where that all came from. It came from me. God is able to humble the pride, proud. All right, uh, what we're going to do now is we're going to look at kind of an opposite story. This is the next chapter, chapter 5, okay? Now, in order to look at chapter 5, we have to connect a couple of people here. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is the story in chapter 4. Belshazzar is the story in chapter 5. So who's Belshazzar? Uh, Belshazzar is related to Nebuchadnezzar. He's further down the line. It goes like this. Nebuchadnezzar, the king in the first chapter, had three kids. One of them was a boy. Evil Merodach, they call him. Okay, he's mentioned in 2 Chronicles. And then he had two daughters. So Evil Merodach is the king for a short period of time. And then we have these, the, the two daughters. The two daughters married important men in the kingdom of Babylon governors and military guys and stuff. One of the girls married a guy named Nabonidus. And after evil Merodach is on the throne, Nabonidus is on the throne for a bit. 
Nabonidus is known in secular history as being the last king of Babylon before the silver kingdom, Persia, came and took over. Okay? That's a known fact. Nabonidus is the last. So what's Belshazzar doing here? Who's Belshazzar? Belshazzar is Nabonidus' son. Young guy, bit of a punk. Okay? You're going to find that out. Now what happens in the story is Nabonidus, we know this from history, he was king for a long time after his dad, or after his father-in-law, Nebuchadnezzar. But at the end of his career, he decides he wants to go do something else. So for 10 years, he leaves the kingdom and goes and does something else. I don't know what he was doing, but didn't want to be uh, sitting on a throne giving meetings anymore. And he left his kid as vice regent. So you've got Nabonidus in, in charge. You've got Belshazzar, punk kid, sitting on the throne, number two. Okay. Now, when you've got somebody who's young that's been handed an entire whack of control and power and money and everything else, what, what happens? It goes right to their head. And that's what we have happening with this kid. Okay, Belshazzar, let's read the story. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. What we have happening here is a large party. A really large party. Some people have looked at the story here and they say, well, this is fairy tale language. Nobody has a party with a thousand people. Let me tell you, we have records of the Persian Empire, the next one, having parties with 15,000 people in attendance. So this is small potatoes, okay? Thousand people, big party with King Belshazzar. Oh, by the way, the stories move forward quite a bit. Daniel is 80 or 80 plus at this time. Daniel's an old man. Belshazzar. Uh, the event we're talking about happened in, in uh, 539 B.C., and it's talked about in secular history. We're going to read some things here. At this time, Babylonia is getting weaker. It's not the big, strong kingdom that it was with, with, uh, with uh, Nebuchadnezzar in control. Uh, at this very time, this very night, there is a two-nation confederacy, the Medes and the Persians from up north and further east, who have surrounded the capital city of Babylon and are laying siege to it. You know what siege is, right? That's where we ring the city with soldiers and no one comes in and no one goes out and we'll starve them into submission and when they wave the white flag then we'll go in and take over and it's our town. That's the idea. We're going to take over. Okay? What is Belshazzar's reaction to the siege that's being laid around his city? Party time. Belshazzar doesn't care. And you know why he doesn't care? We're going to look at some of the details about this city. In human terms, the man doesn't need to care. They got food in there for 20 years. They got water. They got protection. We're good. Okay? We're sitting, our, sitting in, our, in our fortress here, and we're going to throw a party. Uh, they've actually dug up what they think is the banquet hall uh, from that time. Huge big room. There's a special niche at the front of the room where the king would sit. Great big open area there. Big wall. All's kind of important. Coming up in the story, okay? They found that thing as far as they know. Now look at this. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, uh, Hebrew can play with the word father a little bit. It's not literally his father. It means his predecessor, his grandfather it could be, and that's literally what it is. Grandfather Nebuchadnezzar. Bring the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem that they be brought, and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Uh, so they go and they get the golden vessels from God's temple, the temple of the Most High God in Jerusalem. Evidently, these things had not been melted down to make into coinage or something. They still had them. Okay. Now, this is not an incidental, accidental thing that we're going get, to get those specific cups to drink in. You know what's happening here? 
This is an in-your-face God moment. Who is the one who prophesied that the golden kingdom would be replaced by somebody else? God. And it looks like tonight the prophecy might be fulfilled because the silver kingdom, Persia, is ringing the walls of Babylon. They're out there. What's Belshazzar's attitude? It ain't going to happen. And I'm going to get the vessels from the temple of the God who says that I'm going down and we're going to drink a toast to me and my gods tonight. That's what we're doing. Party and celebrate my own success. So they do that. They brought in the golden vessels that have been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. Look at verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Yep, they crossed the line. That's exactly what happened tonight. They crossed the line. We're going to toast all kinds of fake gods with the vessels from the real God. Verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, in other words, right in the light where everyone could see, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Can you imagine disembodied hand floating along the wall, writing on the wall? And you look at the king's reaction, I mean, you would do it too. Look, look, look at this guy. The king's color changed. Oh yeah, he probably went completely white. And his thoughts alarmed him, no kidding. His limbs gave way, his knees knocked together. King's going crazy. Like, what did I just drink? You know, literally. Like, what is happening here? Something's writing on the wall, floating along. Can everyone see that? King called loudly to bring in the enchanters. Okay, bring in the magic men again. That's what they do, I guess. King declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Just tell me what's going on and I'll give you power. Oh, why does he say third ruler of the kingdom? Because he's the second, right? He's giving away the next, the next available uh, place in power there. Whoever can tell me what's going on gets to be next up. So all the wise men come in and they can't read the writing or make known to king the interpretation. Now here's the deal. Uh, the words, as we are going to find out, that are written on the wall are written in Aramaic. Or, or at least Daniel records them in Aramaic. Aramaic is the trade language. It's the language of Babylon, all right? So there's a couple of possibilities here. Number one, the wise men can read the words. It has something to do with weighing, counting, and measuring. But we don't know what in the world that signifies. So we go to the king. We don't know what it means, right? Maybe we understand the words like the language, but like who knows what that means, you know? Furthermore, it's well known from the story of Daniel and from ancient history that if an interpreter comes in and gives a bad interpretation, a negative vision to the king, what happens to them? Off with their head, right? So we're not going to say anything negative here like it might look scary or negative. We're just going to keep quiet like hmm, who knows what that means, you know? The other possibility is that the words are actually written in some kind of unintelligible script and Daniel records what they are in Aramaic in our Bible. That's possible as well. Okay, so anyway, whatever the case is, these guys look at it as like, who knows what that means? And we have to get Daniel. Now look at verse 10. It says, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall. Now who is the queen? I'm going to tell you who it's not. The queen is not Belshazzar's wife. Belshazzar and his wives and his girlfriends and everybody else is in the, in the party hall partying right now. Okay? Who we call in is probably Nabonidus' wife, an older woman, which would actually be Belshazzar's mother. 
She's not in the banquet hall. We have to get her from somewhere else. Or maybe people have said it could be Nebuchadnezzar's wife, Grandma Nebuchadnezzar, who evidently lived to be quite an old woman. Okay? And I actually think it's her because of what she knows. You watch Grandma come in here. So we call in Grandma the Queen, Queen Mother. Queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom. In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? Hey, it's interesting. She knows about this man with the Holy Spirit in him. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, etc., etc. Let Daniel be called and he'll tell you what's going on. So we get Daniel to come in. Now, Daniel, as I mentioned at this point, is an old man. Daniel has lived a long life in the kingdom of Babylon. Stood for righteousness, stood for God's truth against a pagan society. The man's been through some rough stuff, through some scrapes. Okay? And what you're going to see here is Daniel in his old age is going to have a moment of brilliance where he is going to preach to this punk king with his pride. Daniel is going to lay it on the line. He's going to say, here's what's going on. It's actually pretty great. He doesn't just interpret. He actually says, preach a bit of a sermon to this guy. Okay? So look at verse 11. I'm going to take a drink. All right. King brings him in. King says, Daniel, I hear you're smart. You can interpret. If you do this, I will give you a gold chain and make you third in charge. Verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said to the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. I don't know what Daniel's uh, relationship was like with Belshazzar. He doesn't relate to him like he did to Nebuchadnezzar. You know, maybe he didn't get along with him as much. Or maybe it's just Daniel's old, like, what am I going to do with a gold chain? You know, I'm almost done. Like, I, I don't know what, but, you know, keep your rewards for yourself, but I'll, but I'll tell you what it means. Uh, God will help me, right? Verse 18, O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he killed, whom he would he kept alive, whom he would he raised up, whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. His glory was taken from him. He was driven from men. He ate grass like a cow. He reminds him of what happened to grandfather. Remember? Your grandfather. God gave him all this stuff. And then he became proud. And then God made him into a cow. Remember that? Look at this down here. It says, and you, his son, Belshazzar. This is verse 22. Have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You knew what happened to grandfather, and you didn't care. You haven't humbled yourself. You've lifted yourself up in pride anyway. Foolish. Foolish kid. Daniel's being a little bit brave here, isn't he? You know, as far as a, like standing up to say something negative to a person with all that power, that's just not what you do. You know, Daniel just maybe at this point he doesn't care. He's like, going to send it. You know, just tell him. You knew this. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Look at this. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. Dumb gods, right? Look at this. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Brave man. <laughs> to say words like that. The God in whose hand is your life you haven't honored. Let's pause for application right there for us. 
We're in God's hand too. Every breath we have comes from Him. And that money in your wallet comes from Him. And the clothes on your back come from Him. And that car out in the lot belongs to Him. And that house and those kids. And that land and that job. And that retirement account. And that success. All of that comes from Him. And the country that you live in that you didn't choose to be born into. You know, all of this is from the hand of God. God has given all of it to us. And we forget that. And we lift ourselves up in pride and we're like, it's me. Obviously, it's me. You know, I did this. I gave myself these things. Me, me, me. My kingdom, my stuff. God's like, you haven't honored me. Hey, if God goes after a pagan king who's not honoring him, what do you think God wants to do to a Christian who doesn't honor him? Wants to get our hearts, doesn't he? Wants to get us to acknowledge where it came from, to acknowledge God. Daniel says, you have not honored him. Verse 24, then from his presence the hand was sent and the writing was inscribed. And here's the writing. Let's look at the words here. A couple of Aramaic words here. Many, many, tekel and parson. Okay, let's look at them real quick. Many. I don't know why it's uh, written twice here. Maybe it's for emphasis. Uh, the word many is an Aramaic word that means to number or to count. So literally, counted, counted. And Daniel interprets it, and he says, God has counted the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. In other words, time's up. You're done. Tekel. Tekel has to do with being weighed, like on a scale. Back in the old days, they'd have the little scale there with the two little cups, and you put something in this one and something in this one, and you weigh uh, one object in relation to another. Okay, that's how they would weigh things back then. Uh, God says to Belshazzar, you have been weighed. Now, we're not talking about the man's body weight. What we are talking about is, is him as a person. He has been found deficient before God. He's been found wanting. You have been weighed and found wanting. You are not who you should be, is the idea. And then parson. Now, uh, some of our Bibles have you parson, and some of them just have parson. That's just a translation thing. It means the same deal. Uh, it literally means a half shekel. Half shekel. What does that mean? Well, back in the days, they had shekel coins. And the coins back in those days had a little score on them so you could snap it in half and you could pay a half shekel if you wanted to. Okay? So it has to do with breaking something in half. So half shekel here means divided. That's the way it's being used. So counted, counted, weighed, and divided is the idea. And Daniel interprets that and says, your kingdom has been broken in half right now and has been given to the who? Medes and Persians, oh, by the way, they're outside the wall there, the guys with the, uh, the slingshots and stuff. Yeah, it's going to them tonight. Another interesting thing is the word parson is related to, or very close sounding to the word Persia. Maybe a little play on words, who's going to get the kingdom, you know, divided and given to them is the idea. All right, it's going to happen, just like God said. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple and here's a gold chain for you and they proclaimed that he would be the third ruler in the kingdom. And it lasted, you know, 20 minutes. <laughs> kind of feel sorry for Daniel in a sense, right? The guy gets up to the, you know, to the third rulership of the kingdom, and then it's all, all done that very night. Um, look at the next verse. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom being 62 years old. That very night he's killed. Now, the scripture is kind of bland on what happens here. It just says Belshazzar was killed and the Medes took over. Let me tell you what happened from secular history. You got a minute for that? Because it's kind of cool, actually. 
So we got to think about, about uh, what Babylon looked like. Now, we're, we're, we're getting our information here from Greek and Babylonian and Persian historians, Herodotus and Barassus and Cyrus and all these guys. They wrote about what happened here. Babylon covered about 14 square miles. Now, I looked online. Portage is about nine square miles. So think about like a double portage. It's not massive. It's not L.A., but maybe in terms of the time, it's kind of big, right? That is a city, 14 square miles. It had a double wall system with a moat in between. The outer wall was 87 feet thick. They say that you could ride four chariots beside each other along the top of the wall like on a road. Like four cars, you know, line them up. There's a highway up there. That's what they did. That's how you get around on the wall. No wonder Belshazzar wasn't afraid, right? The walls are 350 feet high. Can you imagine something 100 feet tall? I don't know. Is the, uh, is the best western out here 100 feet tall even? Probably not even. Okay? 350 feet tall is these walls. This is a big place. The wall, the, the wall had 100 gates in it. And the city wall had hundreds of towers. Some of them reached 100 feet higher than the wall. You've got something 450, like nearly 500 feet in the air, city wall, two of them with a moat in between, 87 feet thick. Like, who cares who's outside throwing eggs at me? <laughs> We're safe. We're fine. Outside the wall, they've got the Euphrates River going by. Outside the wall. Now, the Euphrates isn't the, isn't the Fox River. The Euphrates is like the Mississippi. It's huge. What the Babylonians had done is they had dug canals under the wall. They had brought water, large amounts of it from the, from the I nearly said the Mississippi, from the Euphrates, brought it in, slooping through the city and back out the other side, back into the river. Like, we've got water for years in here. You can't, you can't, you can't starve us out. Food for 20 years, basically have the river coming through the city. Fortress, who cares? Let's party. That's the attitude. So what happens is this. The very night, that very night, as Daniel is speaking, during the big party, the Medes and Persians, and this would have taken some work, by the way, had prepared large objects to throw into the canal. And they diverted the canal away from the, 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 the slot that it went under the wall so that the water fell from the height of way over a person's head down to about thigh level. And there's water, but we can walk. And the Persian army walks under the wall, gets equipment in there, cuts those big... Oh, they had big metal gates in there, so nobody could swim through, by the way. Big, big bronze gates. They went into the equipment, cut the gates open, and spilled into the city. Middle of the night. They said the party... Oh, by the way, it wasn't just a party in the palace. This was sort of like New Year's for the Babylonians. So they're doing the party in the palace, big thousand-person drinking party in here, toasting our gods with God's cups, you know? Out in the city, it's like Mardi Gras. Seriously, big drunken mess. Big party. Nobody cares, right? They say the Persians came in under the wall like that, and they were killing people off in this side of the city, and people on the other side of the city were still partying, didn't know what hit them. They're mopping up drunken Babylonians all night. Finally, by morning time, the city is theirs. That's what happened. Scripture just says Belshazzar was killed and Medes took over. You got a little more information here to the story, Okay. Hey, listen, God's interested in your heart. God's interested in our heart that we acknowledge Him. You know, we have been raised in a culture that, 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 and I don't mean to be disrespectful at all, but we are like the Babylon of our age. 
We really are. We can export our power wherever we want. Send in the jets and make them tremble. SEAL Team 6 and all that stuff. That's us. We, we, we make the place go the way we want it to go. God gave us that, didn't he? God allowed us to sit where we sit. You know, we have the wealth as a nation that God gave to us. And we have wealth and power and friends and a great future that we personally have got sitting in our pocket. Where did that come from? God gave that to us. And God wants us to acknowledge him. You guys, every last one of us has a problem with pride. And I'm going to talk about myself. Every last one of us has a problem with pride. We quickly devolve to saying, it's me, it's me. I did that. Did you see what I did? I was going to preach at a, a church, this is a few years ago, it was up in Winnipeg. And uh, a friend of mine was introducing me. This is my old uh, uh, hockey coach, okay? And he did something that had never been done before when I went up to preach. I'm sitting over here getting ready to go preach. And he says, and this morning we have with us somebody. You know, and he started to ramp everything up a little bit. And let me, you know, uh, get you to give a warm welcome to Dayfield. You know, he's doing this type of thing, right? He's my, my old hockey coach, you know, whatever. I'd never had that done before. You know what happened inside my heart, though, in my sinful heart? There was a little bit of, yeah, going along with that, you know? And I'm sitting in my seat over here, and he starts to shout my name, and I'm sort of rolling out of my chair, and I'm getting ready to sort of float up on the praise a little bit, you know? You know what happened that very instant? It was so great. It was like God knows exactly what we need. The, the cordless mic, the cordless mic that has a little cord on it, caught on my chair. It was a little moment between this guy and God. No one saw it except God and me. This little thing, as I'm rolling out of my chair to go up, goes boop, boop, like this, catches on the chair. God's like, what are you doing? Punk? Going to go up there and steal someone's glory that belongs to only me? You know, and right away I like changed my heart and I walked up and like, you know, uh, I, I kept myself in my right place. But we're like that, aren't we? We're like that. We gravitate to it. We want it. We relish it. We, we, we love it. We love ourselves. God wants us to acknowledge him. God wants us to turn to him. And all of us got this pride thing going on. So what can we do about our pride? You're not going to kill it. You're not going to make it go away, unfortunately. Okay? It's lived with me for long enough. I realize it's sort of here to, here to stay till Jesus gives me a new body. Then it'll go away, I guess. Um, what can we do, though? Number one, I think I would be praying, God, humble me. And I don't know how God's going to do that. I don't know how God is going to bring us down. God knows exactly what each of us need individually, but I'd be asking for that. God, keep me humble. Keep me in my spot. You know, Scripture says God's not going to share his glory with anybody. So I sure don't want to try to steal any of it. Right? It says that God resists the proud. That's written in 1 Peter 5, 5. And that's written to Christians. God resists the proud. If you want to have God, res uh, God resist you or oppose you, embrace pride. He'll do it. You know, we don't want that. It says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So God, keep me humble. Let's pray for that. Another thing we can do is we can be in community with other Christians. A lot of people can see us better than we can see ourselves. A view from the side once in a while. Hey, are you being a little proud right there right now when you talk like that? You know? I've had some close friends who are good at doing that. Keep me in my place. It's really healthy. Hey, when someone comes to you and says, I think you're lifting yourself up a little bit, at this point, you know what our default uh, uh, response to that is? <laughs> that's not me, that's somebody else. 
You know, let me explain to you what I meant. Let, I let me tell you what I really was doing there. You know, and we smudge it and we fudge it and we make, make the issue go away. Don't do that. That's just pride again, right? Somebody notices it and calls it out. The, the right thing to do is humble ourselves and say, you know what? Yeah, you're right. I'll embrace humility. Um, and then the last thing I think we can do is we can acknowledge God more often. Like what I mean by acknowledge God is like thank him. Bring his name into the conversation more. People say kind things about us. People give us kudos. You, you know, you're so good at this, so good at that. Point it back to him. You know, I don't care how old I get and how advanced I go or whatever. I, I want to keep giving all the flowers to Jesus. That's where they belong anyway, right? And that's something we can do. Learn to thank him. Learn to acknowledge him like he is the big presence in the room that actually made all this happen. Uh, and we can honor him for it. All right, Father, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your spirit who guides us into truth. Thank you for your word, which is good and which teaches us the way we should walk. Lord, I pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we will resist pride. I pray we'll embrace humility. I pray we'll get used to it, Father. I pray that we will learn to glorify and honor you and give you the place that you so much deserve in our lives today. And I pray that that'll be seen. I pray it'll be recognized by a world that's very different from us, Father. Um, I pray that the pagans around us would realize that in us lives the spirit of the holy God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.